Lana Ulrich, in-house counsel for the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is an independent, private nonprofit organization and the only institution in America, chartered by Congress, to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. In this episode, we will be answering questions that you, our listeners, have been asking about various constitutional questions with the Constitution Center's president and CEO, Jeffrey Rosen. We've been collecting your questions over the past few months from social media, our weekly newsletter, Constitution Weekly, and email. Jeff, thank you so much for joining and for answering these great questions. Thank you so much, Lana, and thank you so much for your phenomenal prep for this episode and for all of our phenomenal We the People content. All right, so let's get into our first question. And this one is about the Ninth Amendment. The question is, the Ninth Amendment states that the people have unenumerated rights that cannot be infringed. Who gets to determine what these rights are and how are they determined? What a wonderful question. You can teach all of constitutional law by discussing the Ninth Amendment, why it was included in the Constitution, and what rights, if any, it protects. So let's begin by reading the text. The Ninth Amendment says, The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Why was that provision included? Well, of course, the best place to begin to answer any constitutional question is with the interactive Constitution. So we, the people listeners, go to your app or to the web and check out the great joint explainer by Randy Barnett and Mike Seidman, who, as it happens, are two of America's leading scholars on the Ninth Amendment. I studied their work when I was in law school, and it's so exciting to have them in one place agreeing about what the core meaning of the Ninth Amendment is. And they say that during the ratification debates about the Constitution, some of the anti-federalists were worried that without a Bill of Rights, uh, people might assume that if a right wasn't written down, it wasn't protected. And in response, uh, the federalists, like James Wilson, initially said that it would be dangerous to write down a Bill of Rights. Uh, dangerous because the Constitution itself was already a Bill of Rights. Since Congress was granted no power to infringe the freedom of speech, it, it w- couldn't be construed to have that power. And dangerous because if you write, if you wrote certain rights down, people might wrongly assume that if the right wasn't written down, it wasn't protected. But in response to the objections of the anti-federalists, uh, the Federalists, led by James Madison, changed their mind. And they came to believe that far from being parchment barriers, enumerating certain rights that everyone agreed were fundamental uh, could be useful for extra security and safety. And the preamble to the Bill of Rights that the National Constitution Center uh, has displayed uh, originally said, to avoid misconstruction and for greater security and safety, we're going to write certain rights down. So the core thing the Ninth Amendment does is it says, don't assume that if a right isn't written down, it it isn't protected. But it doesn't tell you which unenumerated rights or which rights that aren't written down are protected. So you need a theory of the Ninth Amendment in order to identify those rights and also a theory of constitutional interpretation to figure out how to specify the unenumerated rights. I have to say that when I was in law school, I got really excited by the Ninth Amendment. And although it's wonky to refer to the notes or the articles that you wrote in law school, I wrote my article about the historical understanding of the right of the Ninth Amendment. And the note appears in a uh, a classic, uh, obscured note from long ago called um, 
was the flag-burning amendment unconstitutional? And introduced the idea, could you have an unconstitutional amendment? And the thought experiment was that if there are certain rights that are natural, in other words, they come from God or nature and not from government, then even a constitutional amendment that purported to alienate or abridge those natural rights might be unenforceable. And this kind of provocative conclusion came from the idea that the core meaning of the Ninth Amendment was to recognize the existence of natural rights that come from God or nature and not from government. Um, I want we the people listeners now to go to the Interactive Constitution's Writing Rights Interactive. You'll find that on the homepage of the Interactive Constitution, where you can look at the language of the revolutionary era state constitutions that Madison was cutting and pasting from when he drafted the various provisions. And a really interesting one is the New Hampshire Constitution of 1783, because that contains the crispest definition of natural rights that exists. So the New Hampshire Constitution says, when men enter into a state of society, they surrender some of their natural rights to that society in order to ensure the protection of others. And without such an equivalent, the surrender is void. Among the natural rights, some are in their very nature unalienable because no equivalent can be given or received for them of this kind are the rights of conscience. That is the whole theory of natural rights right there. It's drawing on John Locke and the idea is that when we're born, we're all born in a state of nature before we create governments. And as human beings, we're endowed by our creator with certain unalienable or natural rights that we can't alienate or surrender to government under any circumstances when we move from the state of nature to create a civil society, as the New Hampshire Constitution says. So when we, when we move into civil society, we surrender some of our alienable natural rights to secure the protection of others, but we have to get an equivalent back in return. The equivalent is I give government the power to punish murder, for example, in exchange for the equivalent of being safer because having government monopoly on punishing private violence is going to make everyone safer. If I don't get that equivalent back, then the surrender is void. And then that's why the right to be free from deprivations of life, liberty, or property without due process of law is an alienable natural right because I'm getting an equivalent back in exchange for surrendering to government the power to punish private violence and, and so forth. But some natural rights are unalienable because no equivalent can be given or received for them of this kind of the rights of conscience. Why are the rights of conscience unalienable? Because my religious beliefs or lack of beliefs, my belief in in, in, in the divine source of all creation is a product of my reason. These are creatures in the Enlightenment. And I can't alienate my reason to government when I form a government. My reason defines whom I am as a creature of God. And I have to retain my absolute right of freedom of conscience when I form a government. So that suddenly we understand the language in the Ninth Amendment about rights retained by the people. That's a term of art. They are talking about rights that are retained when I move from the state of nature to civil society. I alienate the ones that I can get an equivalent back for, but I retain the rights like the rights of conscience that are by their definition are unalienable because they define who I am as a creature of reason and of God or nature. And also, they ensure that I can maintain the protection of my retained natural rights. So the quintessential unalienable rights are the rights of conscience. And the second one that's just as important is the right to alter and abolish government whenever it threatens my retained natural rights rather than protecting them. And that is why Madison said in an amendment that he proposed 
to the Constitution but wasn't adopted. And again, we the people listeners go back to the interactive Constitution uh, writing rights interactive. I know it's a little tough to find now, but in the thrilling redesigned version of the interactive Constitution, which is coming, uh, I hope soon uh, you'll be able to find it more easily. So go to writing rights and uh, you go to the um, homepage. And if you go up on the left-hand corner, you see the amendments that Madison proposed but were not adopted. And the Madison proposal number one, appropriately enough. Listen to this. It sounds kind of like the Declaration of Independence, that all power is originally vested in and consequently derived from the people, that government is instituted and ought to be exercised for the benefit of the people, which consists in the enjoyment of life and liberty with the right of acquiring and using property and generally of pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. And then listen to this, that the people have an indubitable, inalienable, and indefeasible right to reform or change their government whenever it be found adverse or inadequate to the purposes of its institution. So the right to alter and abolish government when it becomes tyrannical is itself a quintessential unalienable natural right, which is necessary to ensure that the bargain is kept and that the equivalent, namely the protection of liberty rather than threatening it, is maintained. What's so interesting about natural rights is that the revolutionary era state constitutions were, had a lot of consensus about which ones they were. And there weren't a whole lot of them, the rights of conscience, the right to alter and abolish government are the quintessential unalienable ones. Speech is generally, it's a little disputed, but is generally considered an alienable right because it can be restricted under certain circumstances, but to the degree that it's linked to freedom of thought and opinion, it's unalienable. And the right to be free from deprivations of life, liberty, and property without due process is itself an unalienable right because you need the due process to maintain the equivalent. And, and that's pretty well it. So to get back to the really important question, if you adopt this natural rights-based vision of the Ninth Amendment, then you would say, what are, our un, uh, what are our retained natural rights? They're the ones that the revolutionary era state constitutions recognized as natural rights, including the rights of conscience, the right of, of revolution, which is codified in Article 5 as the right of amendment, and the right to be free from deprivations of uh, due process and of freedom of speech. But now... The Ninth Amendment is just a kind of rule of construction. It tells us don't assume if it's written down it's not protected. It doesn't create any rights. And if rights are natural and come from God or nature and not from government, they're not created by the Ninth Amendment either. So there might be other natural rights that come from God or nature and not from government that aren't weren't written down in the revolutionary era but still exist. But then you'd need a theory either of interpretation or of uh, rights to identify what those rights are. So you might look to subsequent recognitions of natural rights in state constitutions. California, for example, has recognized the right to privacy as a natural right. And you might say that if a majority of states recognize a new right as natural, that's pretty good evidence that we the people who are the ultimate judge of our natural rights believe that a right is natural and should be protected under the Ninth Amendment. Justice Scalia took a similar approach when in deciding which rights were cruel or unusual under the Eighth Amendment, or rather which punishments were cruel and unusual, you could look to state constitutions as evidence of, of which punishments a majority of states considered cruel or unusual. Again, it's, it's, this evidence is not creating the rights, it's just a good evidence of which rights we the people think are natural, because after all, Madison and the other framers kept saying again and again, our natural rights are so capacious and so sweeping that they're not susceptible to any simple enumeration. Now, it, as it happens, all of the most pitched battles about constitutional interpretation in the 20th century were fought over how do you identify an unenumerated right. 
And the obvious example is Roe versus Wade. Um, the right of privacy is not explicitly written down in the Constitution, but the court seemed to recognize one in Roe. And Justice Goldberg, uh, in abortion cases, suggested that the Ninth Amendment might be support for the existence of an unenumerated right to privacy. Justice Hugo Black and Felix Frankfurter had a very heated debate about topics like this. Black was a textualist, and he thought if a right isn't written down, it's too dangerous to allow judges to decide on their own whether or not it's protected. It's basically a blank check. Frankfurter said, look to the traditions and conscience of our people to figure out which rights are natural and unenumerated. And uh, in, in the end, uh, on the court today, uh, textualists like Justice Scalia fall more, fall more in the black camp and living constitutionalists uh, like perhaps um, uh, Justice Brennan in the last generation would have been more with uh, Justice Frankfurter. In the end, you need a theory of constitutional interpretation to identify unenumerated rights. We've talked a bit on the podcast before about what the theories are. And I think for the new version of the interactive constitution, we're going to try to do a short one or two pager on, on the big theories so listeners can learn more about them. But they include textualism. What does the text say? Original understanding. What do the framers think? History and tradition, which unenumerated rights have been recognized over time. Precedent, what does the court said our unenumerated rights are. Uh, pragmatism, which sort of rights would help the branches of government interact with each other. And natural law, are there unenumerated rights and you, or can you make moral claims about them that might be enforceable? Justice Kennedy is suggesting that autonomy is a constitutional right uh, rooted in the liberty clause might be considered an example of this natural rights like jurisprudence. So in the end, dear We the People listeners, I want you, if you're really wonkish enough to uh, be constitutional uh, lawyers, to study the theories of interpretation, evaluate them, decide which one you think makes sense, and you can mix and match. You can be a pragmatic textualist or a precedent-based living constitutionalist or whatever you like. But once you pick a theory, stick with it and be principled and don't only follow it when it leads to directions you like. Be willing to embrace it when it leads to uh, results that you don't like. That's the test of being a principled interpreter of the Constitution. So that's just one take on the Ninth Amendment. There are many more. You'll find them at the interactive Constitution. And we the people listeners, you know, Lana and her prep team do such great prep for this podcast every week. And as, as bonus for our We the People podcast, we're posting some of it online. So I want you to check it out for further uh, research. So, Lana, you noted that in his joint explainer, Randy Barnett noted that four rival interpretations of the amendment have emerged since the 1980s. Uh, Russell Kaplan claimed it referred to rights granted by state laws, which could be pre preempted by federal laws. Thomas McAfee said it referred to residual rights not surrendered by the enumeration of powers. Akhil Amar, my dear uh, and revered law school teacher, argued that uh, the Ninth Amendment referred to the collective rights of the people to alter and abolish their government. It wasn't counter-majoritarian individual rights. And Randy Barnett, uh, who I was drawing on when, when I was a kid, uh, maintained that the amendment referred to the natural liberty rights of the people. And Randy says that the amendment should be construed in ways that uh, favor a presumption of liberty. So that's just a general introduction to the Ninth Amendment. And Lana, since you... Uh, did this great prep and are marinated in this approach, uh, which which of the approaches to the Ninth Amendment do you find most convincing? Well, Jeff, um, I might agree that I think Randy Barnett's approach seems a, a 
to have at least the most concrete application to, I think, maybe the legal application of these of these natural rights. Um, although I have to say that, you know, it's interesting to think about the way Akilah Mar phrased it, as you mentioned, um, one of the original unalienable rights is the right of the people to change their government. And that seems to be what Akilah is suggesting as, as, the fu- as the foundation of what this provision means. So I, I have to say, I also find that pretty convincing as well. <laughs> You're right. Akil's suggestion is very provocative, but it's also very radical because Akil Amara says that if the right to alter and abolish government is an unalienable right, then the people can amend the Constitution in ways that are not limited by Article 5 of the Constitution. Article 5 says to pass a constitutional amendment, you have to have it proposed by two-thirds of Congress and ratified by three-quarters of the legislature or choose an alternative procedure. Akil said that if we, the people, really want to alter and abolish our government, and if there's good evidence that our view is thoughtful and produced deeply over time and not just a snapshot Brexit vote, then you could have amendment outside Article 5. He hasn't gotten a huge amount of traction for that claim, at least in Congress. (laughs) No one else has argued that a uh, non-Article 5 amendment could be um, uh, officially recognized, although Akhil Amar notes that both the Constitutional Convention was illegal according to the existing rules of the Articles of Confederation and the post-Civil War amendments to the Constitution were also basically ratified at gunpoint. The Union government said to the southern states, ratify the post-Civil War amendments or else you can't come in, which seems pretty extra Article 5. It's not consistent with the formal procedures. So that Akil uses that as a uh, support for his theory, and it is a fascinating theory indeed. Indeed. Great. Uh, Well, our next question similarly relates to the scope and interpretation of the Bill of Rights, and it's about incorporation. And the question asks, what aspects of the Bill of Rights did the U.S. Supreme Court incorporate to the states? So incorporation, like the Ninth Amendment, is the basis for either a whole class on con law or the beginning of a class on con law, because it is so foundational to understanding the meaning of the Constitution. So Dear We the People listeners, remember that for James Madison, the incorporation of certain fundamental rights against the states was the most important amendment of the entire bunch that he originally proposed. And just think about it for a moment. If our rights are natural, if they come from God or nature and not from government, then the state government shouldn't be able to infringe them any more than the federal government can because they precede the formation of government itself. And that's why Madison, in his proposal... And I'm clicking again. It is Madison's Proposal 14, which you can find on the uh, writing rights part of the interactive constitution, says, No state shall violate the equal rights of conscience or the freedom of the press or the trial by jury in criminal cases. Just amazing. So this is the most important amendment in the bunch, according to Madison. The equal rights of conscience, which by definition they're unalienable, the the paradigmatic example of an unalienable right, Freedom of the press, which is linked to free speech. Press itself may not be a natural right, uh, but speech and opinion are. And trial by jury is a common law right necessary to enforce the due process of law that is needed to preserve the equivalent on which the entire bargain of natural rights depends. So Madison would have bound the states and not the federal government. But in a case called Barron against Baltimore early in the 19th century, Chief Justice Marshall held that uh, when the Bill of Rights refers to uh, Congress, it meant to bind only Congress. It says Congress shall make no law uh, regarding uh, freedom of the press. It doesn't say the state shall make no law. So, and Madison's amendment didn't pass. So that meant that for the first half of the 19th century, 
the Bill of Rights applied only to Congress and not to the states and was not incorporated against the states. Then comes the constitutional debate giving rise to the Civil War. And the James Madison of Reconstruction, John Bingham, uh, a forgotten hero who we will celebrate in our new gallery at the Constitution Center about the constitutional legacy of the Civil War and Reconstruction, insisted that the whole point of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution was to incorporate or apply against the states some of or most of the basic and fundamental rights that the original Bill of Rights had applied against Congress. And that's why Bingham stands up in uh, the Reconstruction Congress and gives speeches saying, I read Barron against Baltimore. And just as Chief Justice Marshall said, if the original Congress had wanted to bind the states, it would have said uh, no state shall do this, as it did in uh, uh, the structural constitution. Now, therefore, Mr. Speaker, emulating the great Chief Justice, I chose to follow his instructions and chose the word uh, all, all persons that are born and naturalized in the United States are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. I'm trying to do this from memory and maybe bungling it. No state shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. So the idea is that states as well as the federal government are forbidden from abridging the privileges or immunities or fundamental rights of the citizens of the United States. Now we're back to the question that we started with on the Ninth Amendment. What are those privileges or immunities? How do we identify what those unenumerated privileges or immunities are? And once again, this has been the source of just constitutional uh, battles of the most pitched kind. Back to Black and Frankfurter, Black says, I want to incorporate or apply against the states all 10 amendments of the Bill of Rights. Frankfurter says, no, let's just look at the um, basic principles of fundamental fairness and ordered liberty. They may include some of the Bill of Rights and not all of them. Black's view can be found in the 1947 case of Adamson in California, where he did a lot of research on his own, suggesting that the Bingham and the Framers had meant to apply the much of the Bill of Rights against the states. Frankfurter and his acolytes and supporters at Harvard Law School ridiculed the self-taught Justice Black who would fall asleep every night uh, reading the Constitution and the ancient Greek sources and had a hole in his pillow because the light had burned a hole in his pillow because he was trying to seek light by learning about the history of the Constitution. But despite the scoffings of uh, Frankfurter and his colleagues, Black has basically been vindicated, and subsequent historians, ranging from Akhil Lamar to Michael Kent Curtis, in his great book *No State Shall Abridge*, basically said that Black was right, and Bingham meant to apply much of the Bill of Rights against the states, and uh, but both less and more. So Akhil Lamar says that not all of the Bill of Rights makes sense to apply against the states; only the um, privileges or immunities, and some of the rights in the Bill of Rights are not privileges or immunities. What's an example of an unincorporatable uh, part of the Bill of Rights? Akhil Amar says the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. It says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. We, we, I think there's another question about the Establishment Clause in a, in a bit, which we can talk about. But if the primary purpose of the Establishment Clause is to prevent the federal government from disestablishing state establishments of religion, like congregationalism in Connecticut, then the Establishment Clause is, and I love this uh, to be able to use my SAT word for the first time since I studied for the SAT many, many years ago, it's an 
anti-disestablishment provision. <laughs> it's trying to prevent the federal government from disestablishing the state establishments. It doesn't make sense to think of that as a privilege or immunity. It's basically a federalism provision that is saying what uh, the structure of the relationship between the federal and state governments are. So there's this great academic debate, but in practice, the Supreme Court has incorporated almost all the rights of the Bill of Rights, except, and this is a little bit of black letter law that you learn in con law, the Third Amendment's restriction on quartering soldiers in private homes, the Fifth Amendment's right to a grand jury trial, the Seventh Amendment right to jury trial in civil cases, and the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on excessive fines. So those are the four provisions of the Bill of Rights that have not been applied against the states. You can't go into federal court and say my state has quartered soldiers in my uh, home and I want to prevent that, but everything else has been incorporated. But then we come to another really exciting question. Are there parts of the Constitution that are not in the Bill of Rights that are privileges or immunities of citizenship that uh, the states can't abridge? And there's a really important case called Corfield and Coriel that was decided in the early 19th century and involved oyster farming off the coast of New Jersey. And this was a case in which uh, uh, Justice Bushrod Washington, a relative of uh, the, the father of our country, said there are certain uh, common law rights that everyone knows have been considered to be fundamental and applicable uh, from state to state uh, from the beginning of time and common law. And they include uh, things like the right to make and enforce contract, to soon be sued, to inherit property, certain basic common law rights that uh, come from case law and are considered fundamental and don't vary from state to state, as well as the right uh, not to have habeas corpus suspended and so forth. And in passing the 14th Amendment, lots of people got up and said, hey, let's look to Justice Bushrod Washington's opinion in Corfield and Coriel as an example of some of the rights that don't apply in the Bill of Rights that might be incorporated against the states. So if you had to just ask what the framers of the 14th Amendment thought incorporated against the states, I think it would be fair to say many of the provisions of the original eight amendments and some of the common law rights recognized in Corfield and Coriel and eventually codified in the Civil Rights Act of 1866. One final wrinkle for extreme wonkery, maybe the two sets of rights don't apply in the same way. So the Bill of Rights perhaps is so fundamental that states or the federal government can only infringe them with really good reasons. So a kind of strict or heightened scrutiny applies. Whereas those common law private property rights like the right not to have contracts abridged, maybe applies with a lower level of scrutiny and, and government can abridge it more easily. Now, there's always an argument on the other side and, and libertarians like uh, Randy Barnett would say, no, those common law contract rights are just as important as the uh, rights of free speech and the Bill of Rights. And therefore, the Supreme Court was wrong in the Caroline Products case. And now we're walking out, but you know these are all really important cases that the lawyers will recognize and the Non-lawyers, I hope, will be moved to read. There's a famous footnote in the Caroline Product case, the most famous footnote in all of the 20th century, Caroline Products footnote four, which sets out examples when the presumption of constitutionality that applies to ordinary laws affecting economic rights may not apply. And the footnote says that uh, there is a category of rights and they include... Uh, a narrower scope to presume constitutionality when legislation appears 
uh, to violate a specific prohibition of the Constitution, such as the first 10 amendments. Those are the rights in the Bill of Rights. And then there were other categories, including rights that affect a discrete or insular minorities like African-Americans or rights that operate when the ordinary political processes can't be trusted to ensure a fair debate. So th th that's Caroline Products essentially saying there's a different legal status for the rights in the Bill of Rights and these economic rights that are generally presumed to be less protected. But Randy Barnett and others say there's no textual justification for this distinction. And indeed, those economic rights should be protected just as vigorously as the Bill of Rights. So that's the gist of incorporation. I know it's it's very wonky, but it's really important, we the people listeners, because it uh, once again forces you to come up with some theory of interpretation. If you're an originalist, then you want to know what John Bingham and the other framers of the 14th Amendment thought when they decided which rights were incorporated. If you're more of a precedent guy, you'd ask, what is the what has the Supreme Court said about which rights are incorporated? If you're a natural rights person, you might say, I'm going to look to God or nature to decide which rights should be applied against the states and so forth and so on. So that's why choosing a method of constitutional interpretation is so important when you're identifying unenumerated rights and being principled and sticking to it is absolutely crucial. Great. Uh, well, as you mentioned, Jeff, we do have a question about the Establishment Clause. And the question asks, why do most people say that the Constitution says we must separate church and state? The Constitution only states that the government must not establish a national religion. A wonderful question. And let's begin again with the text. And we the people, listeners, I, I'm so convinced that looking closely both at the text of the amendments we're talking about and at their antecedents in the Revolutionary Era and the Reconstruction Era is such a good way of understanding what the framers had in mind. So the First Amendment says... Relevantly, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Did, did I get that right? I did that from memory. Yeah. That was, yeah? Okay. yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> More important than, than uh, party tricks uh, about uh, the current text is, is the antecedent. So Madison gave this speech on June 8th, 1789 in the first Congress, and this was his original proposal for the three religion clauses. First, the civil rights of none shall be abridged on account of religious belief or worship. Two, nor shall any national religion be established. Three, nor shall the full and equal rights of conscience be in any manner or on any pretext infringed. Wow, isn't it great to break it down that way? Because now we're really back to the natural rights basis for the rights of conscience, which is the final clause, the full and equal rights of conscience can't be infringed. The first clause says the civil rights of none shall be abridged on account of religious belief or worship. So there's a, an equality dimension uh, to the idea that all uh, religions must and all beliefs must be treated equally. And, and civil rights, including the rights of conscience and opinion, can't be abridged on account of religious belief. And then this very crisp explanation of what the point of the Establishment Clause of, nor shall any national religion be established. So we know that the core, central, clear original meaning of the Establishment Clause was to prevent Congress from establishing a national church. You can't say that Congregationalism, which was the successor uh, denomination to Puritanism in New England or, or, or the, the, the Catholic Church in Maryland, um, ca uh, can't be established as, as a national church. That's an obvious fear because in colonial times, as Michael McConnell and Marcy Hamilton say in their joint 
Explainer on the interactive constitution, the Church of England is established by law in all the southern colonies, while localized Puritan or Congregationalist establishments held sway in New England states. And Hamilton and McConnell say this had a lot of consequences. Clergy are appointed and disciplined by colonial authorities. Colonists are required to pay religious taxes and often to attend church services. And dissenters are often punished for preaching without a license or refusing to pay taxes to a church they disagreed with. After independence, they say there's widespread agreement there should be no nationally established church. The Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, principally authored by James Madison, reflects this consensus. The language applies only to the federal government and all states disestablished religion by 1833. Isn't that incredible that long after the Bill of Rights, there is still established churches lingering in the early 19th century? Now, it wasn't until the 1940s that the Supreme Court said that disestablishment applies to state governments through the 14th Amendment. Both Akhil Amar and Justice Thomas, citing Akhil Amar, question that conclusion and say it makes no sense to apply the Establishment Clause against the states for the federalism reasons we talked about when discussing the Ninth Amendment. So to add a prefix to the SAT word, it's an anti-anti-disestablishment provision. It's designed to uh, prevent the, st- the feds from establishing a national church and to also prevent them from uh, disestablishing the state churches. Does the phrase mean more than that? And what's the source of the phrase, the separation of church and state? Well, it comes um, after the Constitution was ratified from a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote in 1802 to the Danbury Baptist Association to answer a letter that they wrote the year earlier. The Danbury Baptists are a religious minority. They're complaining that their religious liberties are being infringed. And Jefferson says the following. Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people, which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof thus building a wall of separation between church and state. So that's the source of the phrase. And then Jefferson goes on to say, adhering to this expression of the supreme will of the nation in behalf of the rights of conscience, I shall see with sincere satisfaction the progress of those sentiments which tend to restore to man all his natural rights, convinced that he has no natural right in opposition to his social duties. Just, isn't it beautiful, the enlightenment symmetry of Jefferson's faith that both the rights and duties of the religious provisions reinforce each other. But um, it was in the 1940s that the Supreme Court uh, uses the phrase a wall of separation between church and state. The case was called Everson versus Board of Education. It was 1947 and it upheld a New Jersey law which allowed reimbursements of money to parents who sent their children to schools, uh, in this case Catholic schools, on buses that the public transportation system. Justice Hugo Black, the great textualist, wrote for the five to four majority, the establishment of religion clauses of the First Amendment mean at least this, neither a state nor the federal government can set up a church, neither can pass laws which aid one religion, aid all religions, or prefer one religion over another. And then he goes on to say, in the words of Jefferson, the clause against establishment of religion by law was intended to erect a wall of separation between church and state. Uh, Black went on to say we couldn't tolerate a single breach, and and yet he 
upheld the law which allowed the reimbursements of money, prompting a dissenter to say it was like the um, zugma of Alexander Pope in the Rape of the Lock saying she would thus consent, consented. Basically, the dissenters are saying black is saying, well, we couldn't approve a single breach, but he actually approves it after all. So today, of course, the f- question of how high the wall is uh, the most hotly contested question in our religion jurisprudence. And I have always found it helpful to separate three separate approaches to this question. The strict separationist, the religious supremacist, and the religious neutralist. The strict separationists basically say black meant what he said, and no uh, breach means no breach. And any state support for religion or endorsement of religion or attempt to introduce religion into the public sphere is unconstitutional. The most extreme version of this clause, of this of this theory of the strict separationism would say that even the phrase in God we trust on the currency would be, would violate the separation of church and state. The Supreme Court has disagreed and said that's de minimis and it's okay because of tradition. But uh, the claim that uh, any state support of religion in any form, whether symbolic or financial, violates the First Amendment is the position of the strict separationist. At the polar opposite are the religious supremacists. They say that you can't endorse one sect over another. You can't have a um, plaque that says uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is our sovereign God, but you can have non-denominational prayers that refer to uh, the Almighty in general terms and not in sectarian terms. And they also say that um, state uh, displays celebrating Christmas or other religious holidays are permissible as long as they don't favor one sect over another. So it's okay to favor religion over irreligion and there's a long tradition of doing this. The position in between is religious neutralism. It essentially says that public religious endorsement is impermissible, that private religious speech is okay, and all the hard cases involving where to draw the line. So the tough case for the neutralists and the test of neutrality is school vouchers. And the court in the Zellman case upheld school vouchers on the neutralist ground that it was parents rather than the state that decided who got the vouchers. Parents get the vouchers and they can either bring them to private secular schools or to private religious schools or to public charter schools. And because private choice, not public preference determines the direction of the fund, then there's no establishment of religion. The most recent uh, case working out this really interesting and important battle between the supremacists, the separationists, and the neutralists was the Trinity Lutheran case. It was so significant in the Trinity Lutheran case that the court said that that the Missouri Department of Natural Resources uh, could not have a policy of denying grants to any applicants owned or controlled by a church, that that was a form of religious discrimination, and it was okay for a school to get funds to repair the rubber on its playground, even if it was a religious school. How interesting it was that Chief Justice Roberts's opinion was joined by Justices Anthony Kennedy, Samuel Alito, and Elena Kagan. Um, Justice Stephen Breyer wrote a concurring opinion as well. The two dissents were by Justice Sonia Sotomayor, joined by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So all that suggests that there is a supermajority on the Roberts Court in favor of the religious neutrality position, although exactly how 
direct the aid can be to schools is hotly contested. And there's a footnote three in the Trinity Lutheran case written by Chief Justice Roberts, which emphasizes that the issue before the court was expressed discrimination based on religious identity with respect to playground resurfacing. And the court wasn't weighing in on religious uses of funding or other forms of discrimination. Justices Gorsuch and Thomas refused to sign that footnote. Justice Gorsuch said while the footnote was entirely correct, he was worried that that could be interpreted that the ruling applied only to playground cases or to those associated with children's safety or health. And he said instead, there are general principles that do not permit discrimination against religious exercise, whether on the playground or anywhere else. So the question remains contested on the court, but it's striking, isn't it, that in this most uh, controversial of all areas, there's a bipartisan majority in favor of religious neutrality. It is. Okay, we have a question about the First Amendment, and this question asks, if Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech under the First Amendment, why are some government limitations on political contributions constitutional? Well, this is a very hotly contested question, and the best place to begin answering it is with the interactive Constitution. And Jeff Stone and Eugene Volokh wrote an extraordinarily uh, collegial uh, joint explainer because they agreed on almost everything, but the status of political speech was one of the issues that they disagreed about. And Jeff Stone and his separate explainers noted, just descriptively, that in its initial answers with the question of whether uh, the government can constitutionally restrict political expenditures and contributions to improve the democratic process, the Supreme Court held that political expenditures and contributions are both speech within the meaning of the First Amendment because they're intended to facilitate political expression by political candidates. The court also recognized but that political expenditures and contributions could be regulated if the government could demonstrate a sufficiently important justification. And the seminal case is Buckley and Vallejo, 1976, where the court held the government could constitutionally limit the amount that individuals could contribute to political ca candidates in order to reduce the risk of undue influence, while political expenditures could not be similarly regulated because they posed less of a threat of corruption. And then there was the McConnell versus FEC case where the court reaffirmed the idea that the government could constitutionally limit the amount that corporations could spend in the political process in order to influence electoral outcomes because that expenditure might pose a risk of corruption. But in more recent cases, most notably and famously, the Citizens United case, which was five to four, uh, the Supreme Court said that almost all government efforts to limit the impact of money in the political process are unconstitutional. And some justices have signaled that they would abandon the distinction between contributions and expenditures and would protect both as speech under the First Amendment and they would also protect corporate speech as vigorously as the speech of individuals. Uh, the counter argument is that corporate speech should not be protected in the same way as individual speech because the rights of speech are, as we've been discussing, natural rights that come from God or nature and not from government. And if a right is natural, it must adhere in the individual and not in the corporate form, which at the time of the framing was not closely developed. The counter to the counter is individuals can convene to form closely held corporations and therefore should have First Amendment rights in their corporate form. So I'll leave it to listeners, of course, to make up their own minds about this hard question, but do take the arguments on both sides seriously. These are hard cases. Read Citizens United, read the majority opinion, read the dissent, and decide for yourself what the Supreme Court may 
decide if its composition changes, namely should Buckley be overturned and should all restrictions on uh, political speech be disallowed or should uh, Buckley be strengthened and sh- could should corporate um, contributions and expenditures plausibly be regulated more strictly than those by individuals. Okay, so we have time for one more question. And this question is a bit of a constitutional softball, but it's an important question nonetheless. And the question is, are all National Constitution Center programs eligible for PA CLE credits? And how can we find the eligible programs a number of hours of credit available? Lana, you have to answer that question because you are responsible for setting up this phenomenal CLE program. It's so exciting to be able to offer CLE credits for the lawyers among our listeners. Exciting because how much more fun to get your CLE credit listening to thrilling National Constitution Center programs, videos, and podcasts rather than those dreary videos that uh, we all used to have to listen to before the Constitution Center started offering CLE credit. And also, dear We the People listeners, National Constitution Center friends, this is an important source of revenue for us. It can help support all of our great programs and our philanthropic mission. So if you have a choice, uh, do listen to uh, NCCCLE programs. But Lana, uh, tell our listeners how they can find the eligible programs and the number of hours and whether all programs are eligible for PACLE credit. Sure. So not all programs are available, but most of them are. You can go online to constitutioncenter.org slash CLE for more information and to find out which programs are available. But just to let you know about some of our upcoming programs, um, on February 5th, we're hosting a program uh, about the Second Amendment, Armed in America, A History of Gun Rights. February 7th, we're hosting a panel about Justice Antonin Scalia, his life and legacy with Ed Whelan, Rick Hayson, and many others. On March 1, we're hosting Yale Law School Dean and Constitutional Law Scholar Heather Gerken about how the right and left can unite around federalism. And on March 20th, Jeff, your book launch, William Howard Taft and the Constitution with uh, Judge Doug Ginsburg is also available for CLE credits. That's going to be so much fun. Lana, thank you for the wonderful work we did together on the book and how exciting to call attention to our most constitutional president and presidential chief justice, William Howard Taft. Yeah, it was a great project and I'm looking forward to the book launch. Me too. Thank you, Jeff, for answering these constitutional questions in such an interesting and illuminating way. Thank you, Lana, for collecting the questions and helping prepare me to answer them in such an illuminating way. And thanks to We the People listeners for sending in the questions. Keep sending them in and we will keep answering them and let us keep learning together. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory, edited by David Stotts, and produced by Nugana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Nugana Etze. Here's the big ask for today's podcast. Please rate us on iTunes and other platforms. It helps other people learn about what we do so they can become constitutional learners as well. And please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast, Live at America's Town Hall, on iTunes, Stitcher, or other podcast apps. So Live at America's Town Hall is the feed of all of our phenomenal traveling town hall debates. We've had such good ones recently. If you listen to Live at America's Town Hall, you can hear all of the Constitution Center's other great live constitutional content. You all know the importance of philanthropic support because despite that congressional charter that now our listeners are reciting back to their professors uh, as a sign of their devotion to our catechism, we don't get any meaningful government support. We rely on the generosity of people around the country 
were inspired by this nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. So please consider becoming a member, signaling your devotion to this community of lifelong learning. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. And I'm Lana Ulrich.